Please, brothers and sisters, if you would, turn with me in your Bibles to our text this morning, which comes from the book of Revelation. So we'll be looking at chapter 6 and verses 9 to 17. Revelation chapter 6, verses 9 to 17. Revelation chapter 6, verses 9 to 17. Please then hear with me the reading of God's Word. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the Word of God and for the witness they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O Sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete who were to be killed as they themselves had been. When he opened the sixth seal, I looked and behold, there was a great earthquake and the sun had become black as sackcloth. The full moon became like blood and the stars of the sky fell to the earth And the fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. The sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Then the kings on the earth, and the great ones and the generals, and the rich and the powerful, and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the face of Him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come and who can stand? Thus far is a reading of God's holy and inerrant Word. Well, it was just a few months ago in Sunday school that I had taught this And I hope that all of you who are there during that time uh, continue to uh, understand it and keep it in mind as we move forward. And what I'm talking about is, is how we are to read the book of Revelation. How we are to read how it has been broken down for us. And what I mean by that, if you remember, is that we had said that the book of Revelation is to be viewed as having kind of seven parallel sections, right, which are all detailing the time from Christ's ascension until His second coming. Right? The book of Revelation, from chapter, the first chapter to the end, what it contains are seven parallel sections, we said, all describing the church age, essentially. Right? What's going on here on earth from the time of Christ's ascension until His second coming. But each section describes those same events from different angles, from different perspectives, through different lenses, right? Not all the same way. And as we get closer to the end of those seven sections, as we get closer to the end of the book of Revelation, what we will see is that it is intensified or or emphasized the judgment that is to come as well as the return of Christ, the first section then comprised chapters 1 to 3. And we've seen that in chapter 1, who is revealed to John, but the exalted Christ who has ascended on high. 
And there in chapter 1, verse 7, he says that he will come again to judge the world and will, all will behold him as he comes. In chapters 2 and 3, there we are told of what type of persecution the church is going to suffer until the time when Christ returns. Now, those churches that he writes to, these seven churches we've said multiple times, are seven real churches that John writes to. And they're truly dealing with this persecution at the end of the first century. But what we also said is that seven is a, is a very symbolic number. Right? It's used over 30 times in the book of Revelation, which is meant to convey something to us. Right? There is a, a richer or a greater spiritual meaning behind the number seven. And we said that that was uh, a number for completion or, or fullness or totality. So that what was being communicated to us and Christ choosing seven churches to write to was that what is being spoken of here is something that all of the church, right, the church in its totality, the church in its fullness, is likewise going to experience until the return of Christ. This is why towards the end of almost all of the letters you keep hearing this. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Right? That, that is continually being repeated. That's because this was a, a traveling book as well. This was a book that would have made its way through Asia Minor, right? Not just to these seven churches, but to other churches as well. It would have been passed along so that they would have heard these words, that they would have been read aloud amongst the congregation. But that's because what was written is for the church in general. It's for all churches. It's for us today as well, right? This is why John can then say in the prologue of this book, Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. And blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written for the time is near. Right? Brothers and sisters, today as we read, we are being blessed by this book. As you hear these words being proclaimed, we are being blessed by them through the work of the Holy Spirit. And we ourselves then likewise must be attentive to the contents of this book because it is no less true at our time then it was at their time that the time of Christ's coming is near. Because just as the saints in the first century were, so too are we living in the last days. But there is a difference that we need to see between the first section that I just described, chapters 1 to 3, and the second section that we've started in chapter 4 and that runs through chapter 7. And that difference that we need to see is this. That in the first section, what is described for us is this spiritual battle going on from an earthly level, right? from, a, from an earthly plane. It's, it's a battle that is being described that, that we ourselves actually see, that we ourselves actually experience in our own lives. That is what is being described in that first section. But in the second, second section, we are moved out from or are moved away from the earthly plane and we are now lifted up into heaven. And now we see how everything transpires and unfolds in history, not from the vantage point of man, but from the vantage point of God. And what we seen last week is that what is taking place on earth is a result of the Lamb who is exalted, who is taken hold of the scroll and who now is removing the seals one by one. And the vision is depicted in this manner to show us what? To show us that Christ is the one who is in sovereign control over all things. 
that He is the one who is unfolding history. And it is revealed to John in this way, in this picture, in this form, to comfort the church in the midst of their suffering and of their trials. Knowing that all persecution, that all tribulation, that all affliction ultimately has been decreed by God. And the goal of it all is to purify His church and to glorify Himself as the One who sits on the throne. Now last week we looked at the first four seals and we said that these first four seals were God's judgment that He had poured out upon the earth. That the people in the first century experienced, but that we too experience in our own days. And that Christians will continue to experience until the end of time. And these judgments, we said, had two purposes. Do you remember those two purposes? Right. The first was to test the faith of the saints. And the second purpose was to further condemn and punish the wicked for their rebellion against God. But we see that these first four seals are things that continue to press forward throughout history. We said the first seal was what? That there is those going about conquering and to conquer. And we see that. Is there not people still trying to conquer today? We've seen the second seal, which was what? Bloodshed on the earth. Is there still not bloodshed today as there was then? The third seal that was removed, famine. Famine continues to, to plague many countries around the world. Lastly, the fourth seal, death. Right? Death is something that hits us all, that, that none of us are able to escape. And so these were the, the first four seals that were re- revealed to us last week and unleashed by God upon the earth. Now what we get a glimpse of today, though, in this vision, is a response of those who have died under these first four seals. Right? That is what we're going to see. This is the response of the saints who have died under these first four seals who are now in heaven. And likewise, what we will see is God's response to their cries. So this morning, what we're going to do is is focus our attention upon uh, two points and two points only this morning. But under both of those points, I'm going to have three sub-points for you. And so our first point this morning is the fifth seal. Our first point is the fifth seal. And our first sub-point, so five, or, uh, 1A, is what John sees. Right? What John sees. And we read this in verse 9. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness that they had borne. Now, brothers and sisters, one thing that we must keep in mind at all times is that this is a vision. We can get off track quick and in a hurry if we forget this. We are being taught something by the vision, and in no way is this meant to be taken literally. This is a symbolic vision. These are pictures not intended to be taken as Literal photographs of what you see in heaven. We have to keep that in mind. And just think about it. We just read in in chapter 4 that John sees one who is sitting on the throne. Let me ask you this. Does God need a throne to sit upon? No, He's an eternal Spirit who neither sits nor stands. 
But this vision is given to us of one sitting on the throne to convey a spiritual truth or a spiritual reality to us. And that is that, that God is a God who is sovereign over all things, that He is in control over all things, that He is the King over all things. And we need to say, see that the same is true for the souls that John sees in our text today. I mean, how does, does one literally see a soul? When we read that, do you, do you ask yourself those things? How does one see a soul when a soul is immaterial? So we need to understand this is a vision. Right? We're not to be taking this literally. In the, in the same way, we are to see the, the altar in John's vision that these souls are under. Right? It is not to be taken literally. There is not a, a literal altar in heaven upon which you're going to find souls underneath it. But rather, this is a vision that is meant to convey some sort of truth to us. Now, the altar in the Old Testament was an extremely important article right, in the tabernacle and in temple worship. Because it was upon the altar of sacrifice that you offered unto God by which you were able to draw near to Him. Right? You needed this altar of sacrifice to even approach God. So in the tabernacle and in the temple, there were two altars that were used. There was an, an, uh, an altar in the outer court where the animals were sacrificed. And then there was a, another uh, altar uh, by the Holy of Holies in which uh, incense was burned. It was called the, the altar of incense. But what we see in the book of Revelation is that John kind of sees these two altars as, as one. We'll see that throughout the book. That he'll see sacrifice upon the altar and burning of incense upon the same altar. But the altar that we're talking about here, the one in which animals were sacrificed upon, we, is, is described for us in Leviticus chapter 4, verse 7, where we read this. And the priest shall put some of the blood on the horns of the altar of fragrant incense before the Lord that is in the tent of meeting. And all the rest of the bull he should pour out at the base of the altar of burnt offering. Right? So what we need to understand is that at the, at the bottom of the altar, right, the, as the blood is poured out and it, it falls into the, the basin at the, at the bottom of the altar. That's what we read about here. But in John's vision, no longer does he see at the basin right, blood that is being poured down there, but instead he sees what? He sees the, the souls of those who have been slain for the Word of God and for the witness that they had borne. And so we have to ask then ourselves, what is this picture that we are given meant to convey to us? Right? What is it meant to convey to us? Well, what we need to understand is that it symbolically depicts for us the reality that these saints who are crying out in heaven have laid down their lives for Jesus in the Gospel, becoming martyrs for God. Right? That is the truth that is being communicated here to us. That it is their blood that has been spilled and that their lives have been lost for God. Right? Their lives were, were used as a sacrifice to God. Right? Their blood was shed for Him. That is what, what John is seeing in this vision. That is the truth, the spiritual truth, that is being communicated to John in this vision. Now, we aren't to think about this because it's an altar, that these sacrifices that we're talking about and that John sees 
as an atoning sacrifice in any way. The only atoning sacrifice that was made was made by Jesus Christ. But Paul does speak about his own life and the life of saints in language of, of being used as an offering or a sacrifice. We see this in a text like Philippians chapter 2 and verse 17. Paul says this, Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith. And so what this is communicating is a a simple truth that the lives of the saints are to be offered up to God. That's what Paul's saying here, right? Our lives are to be offered unto God. Our lives are not our own, right? Our lives belong to God. And that is how we are to view our lives as a sacrificial offering that are to be given up to God. And this is exactly what the saints that John sees under this altar did, right? They had been slain. They had been killed. There were many who had their blood shed like Antipas. Because what? Because Jesus removed the second seal and allowed peace to be taken from the earth and allowed people to, to slay one another. And so now John sees those who have been slayed under this altar. Now it's possible. It's possible that only those who had been slain are the souls that John sees under this altar. But I would contend that it's more likely that those who are slain here, this word that is used, slain, is really metaphorical. And it is used to represent all believers who suffered and who overcome the world, who persevered unto death, never compromising their faith, never shying away from their witness to Christ. And there's a, a couple reasons why I say that. Right, so first, we have to understand these seven letters were just written to these seven churches. And there are these promises to them of what? Of eternal life, of white robes. Right? And that is written to all of the saints in those churches who believe, not just those who suffer martyrdom. And even in this picture, what are the souls wearing? White robes. And so I think there's one reason to, to, to believe that, that the saints under uh, the altar that John sees are, are all who suffered for Christ, not just those who were literally killed for Christ. The second reason then is, is just the language of losing our life or, or giving up our life for Christ. Right? That, that language is used figuratively throughout the New Testament, isn't it? I'll give you one example. In Matthew chapter 10, verses 38 to 39, Jesus says this, And whoever does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. And here it is. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Do you see, brothers and sisters, and losing our life for the sake of Christ by dying to the world and denying ourselves is what we are all called to do. It is something we are all called to do. We are all called to live our lives as, as sacrifices offered up to God upon His altar. That is what we are all called to do. It doesn't just belong to a small group of people or some special class of people. But every one of you here is called to deny yourself and live your life for God, for you belong to Him. 
Right? We are all called to live a life that appeases God and not ourselves. We are all called to live our life according to His will and not our will. The basic meaning of the Greek word martyr, in fact, means witness. Right? The basic meaning of the Greek word martyr means witness. These saints that he sees under the, wa- under the altar died because of what? Because of their witness. In this sense, then, every single one of you who sits here today is called to be a martyr. Not that you must literally be killed, but you must give up your life for Christ. Right? You must give up your life for Christ. You must constantly be bearing witness for Christ, for that is what you have been called to do. George Eldon Ladd, in his commentary on the book of Revelation, says this very thing. He says this, Every disciple of Jesus is in essence a martyr. And John has in view all believers who have so suffered. Do you see that, Christian? That built into the very nature of what it means to belong to the church is a calling for you to be a martyr. That is all of our calls. To be a martyr. right? To, to give your earthly years and your earthly life, no matter how short or how, or how long, all to God. Now this, I think, is a, is a view that too few of Christians actually hold to. Right? For many, they say, I believe in Christ, but oftentimes they live for their job. Right? They believe in Christ, but they, they live their lives for their children. Or I believe in Christ, but I, I live my life for my own pleasures and enjoyments. But do you see that that misses the entire point for which you were saved? Right? Christ did not send His Son to die for you so that you might gain your life. He sent His Son to die for you that you might lose your life for Him. Do you see that? These saints in Ephesus, in Smyrna, in Thyatira, could not go confessing the name of Christ and then bowing the knee to Caesar. All because they wanted to maintain a, a peaceful and comfortable existence. Right? They couldn't attend these pagan, idolatrous festivals with their neighbors. Because they knew that their lives did not belong to themselves. Their lives belonged to God. And because of it, they were made to suffer. They suffered death. They suffered torture. They suffered the loss of freedom, a livelihood. All of those things. I ask each and every one of you here today who, who professes faith in Christ, do you live as a martyr? Do you live as a martyr? Is your life a sacrificial offering being lived to God, being poured out for the sake of Christ and for the sake of the church and for the sake of the Gospel? Right? Are you maintaining a faithful witness to Christ in every aspect, in every sphere of your life? Or are you making decisions, worrying about what's the best for me? What's the best for me so I can keep a comfortable existence in my life? What's the best for me that I can be happy? Brothers and sisters, let us see that the, the, the slain Lamb did not come to be slaughtered for your sins. Coming down from glory with the Father. Assuming to Himself our nature so you can live out the rest of your existence with peace and ease and rest. Do you see that? Look at verse 11. 
Then they each were given a white robe and told to rest a little longer. Do we see that it is here in heaven that the saints are told to rest? Right? We rest from our trials. We rest from our tribulations. We rest from our struggles. Not now, but in heaven. Until you get there, your earthly existence will be filled with all sorts of trials and tribulations. Right? The, the devil is going to attack you and assail you and assault you with temptation from without throughout your earthly existence. Right? This world is going to tempt you. For some of you, the, the government or your employer is going to ask you to do things that go against your faith. And in all these instances, we must stand up against it. We must oppose it. We must not do it. Maintaining our faithful witness to Christ. We are called, brothers and sisters, to daily be putting on the whole armor of God. Why? It's because we daily are doing battle spiritually with the evil forces. And we cannot compromise. No matter what we are faced with, we have to dedicate our entire being, both body and soul, to the Lord and to His cause, no matter what that may cost us. We are not to put our Christian faith under a basket so that it can be hid and not seen by anyone. But rather, we are called to put our Christian faith upon a stand. Right? That is your calling. That is how we are to, to live so that the light of Christ that lives inside of you can be seen by the world. Right? This is who John sees. Those who live their lives for Christ and who died confessing Christ, whether that was by the sword or some other cause. All of them suffered in some way, shape, or form for Christ and for the Gospel. He's seen those who suffered under these first four seals. The four seals of judgment that we read about last week. These four seals, these four judgments that will continue to persist upon the earth until Christ returns. And at that time, He will put an end to all martyrdom. The next thing that I want us to see, our, our second sub-point then, is what John hears. What John hears. In verse 10 we read this, They cried out with a loud voice, O Sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before You will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Now at first... Maybe some of you are sitting here and taken aback by these words. Because you remember the words of Christ, right? That we are to, to, to love our enemies, right? We are to, to pray for those who hate us. Maybe some of you are thinking back even to the example of Stephen. And what did Stephen do in Acts? The book of Acts when he is being killed, right? When he is being stoned to death. Does Stephen wish retribution against those men? No. What does Stephen do? He, he prays to God that he would forgive him as they are stoning Stephen and putting him to death. And so we, some of you might be asking yourself, well, how does then what we read here with these saints in heaven are crying out square with what we are told in Scripture? Right? Because it sounds like these saints in heaven are begging for some revenge, that they're, that they're looking for some retribution. Is that the case? Well, brothers and sisters, the answer is no. 
Not at all. That is not what they are doing at all. They are not seeking retribution for some personal attack that was done against them. But rather, these are cries for the reputation of God and for the reputation of the church that they would be vindicated. That is what those cries are. And so these are righteous cries. These are righteous prayers. Right? What these saints are saying is not, they harmed and killed us, so, so Lord, when is it time for you to harm and kill them? That's not what they're saying. They're appealing to God, asking for His final manifestation of righteousness and justice be showed to all. That's what they're asking for. Right? They're, they're not thirsting after bloodshed. But rather, what they're thirsting after is the glory and honor of God, that it would be seen by the entire world. And we have to ask, well, how is that then accomplished? Right? How is the, or when does the final manifestation of His righteousness and justice happen? It happens at His second appearing, at His second advent, when He comes again to judge the world in righteousness. And so it's this Christ then who they're crying out to, and they cry out to Him for this because He is the one with the scroll in His hand who has been given all authority in heaven and earth and it is He who has promised to vindicate His church. And so they're calling upon Him. Vindicate your name. Vindicate your church. And we know that this is their appeal by how they address Him. How do they address Christ in verse 10? O Sovereign Lord, Holy and true. They know because Christ is holy that He cannot allow sin to gain victory. They know that because He is holy, He has to punish sin. That He must execute His justice upon the wicked. That is what they are calling out for. They know because Christ is true that everything that He has said to them must come to pass. Not only the promises to the saints, but also the threats to the ungodly. And we see, brothers and sisters, a a similar prayer of vindication in Psalm 79. Turn with me there if you'd like to, please. Psalm 79. We'll see a, a similar prayer of vindication here. Starting in verse 5. This is what the psalmist says. It sounds very familiar to what we hear today. How long, O Lord, will you be angry forever? Will your jealousy burn like a fire? Pour out your wrath on the nations that do not know you and on the kingdoms that do not call upon your name. Look then at what he appeals to in verse 9. He says this, Help us, O God of our salvation, for the glory of Your name. Right? The psalmist is concerned that he would demonstrate the truth of his existence to the world, to the glory and honor of His name. That is what they are concerned with here. In verse 10 then, look. Why should the nation say, Where is their God? Let the avenging of the outpoured blood of Your servants be known among the nations before our eyes. Right? This is the same prayer, a very similar prayer that, that John hears in verse 10. Right? The saints in heaven know that God's Word is true. They know that He is true. 
It is He that is true that they confessed. It is the truthfulness of His Word that they bore witness to, which is why they died. But yet, brothers and sisters, although this is the case, although God is true and His Word is truth, how do so many respond to that truth in the first century? They continue to, to mock God and to blaspheme God and to be idolaters and to persecute His precious bride, right? all the while denying Him. This too then, brothers and sisters, we need to see is, is why they're calling out for Christ to vindicate Himself. Not only because they want Him to demonstrate His holiness and His truthfulness, but they also want Him to demonstrate before the eyes of the world that He alone is God. That too is what they desire. And in seeing this, in hearing the prayers of these saints in heaven, we have to ask ourselves this this day. Do we pray like this? Do we pray like these saints? For this prayer is put forth to us as an example of how it is we are to pray as well. Look at how they pray. Who are their prayers concerned with? Their prayers are concerned with God's glory. Their prayers are concerned that the name of God be shown to be true. That's what their prayers are concerned with. Also, remember that these saints are those who have already died. They're in heaven. They're in glory. They're not suffering anymore. And so who are they praying for here? They likewise are praying for others. They're praying for their brothers and sisters in the Lord that they would be relieved from their affliction. These aren't selfish prayers. These aren't prayers about all the things that they need which so many of our prayers devolve into today. So, brothers and sisters, this prayer is a prayer too that we ought to continue to pray. Why? Because the same thing that was going on then is going on now. The nations still persecute the church. They still mock God. They still blaspheme His name. They still do not offer unto Him all glory and honor that is due to He who alone is God. This is why there's nothing wrong with crying out these very words of this prayer even today. Unbeknownst to to many of you, you actually do pray this. You just don't know it. I mean, think about it. What do you pray in the Lord's Prayer? Thy kingdom come. What does it mean when Christ's kingdom comes in its fullness? You're praying that He comes and He executes His justice upon the ungodly. Right? That's what we pray for when we pray Thy kingdom come. We are praying when we say Thy kingdom come that, that all the world would at that time behold the radiance of God's glory. We pray Thy kingdom come so that the church would no longer be persecuted, that we would be afflicted no more. When we pray Thy kingdom come, what we're asking for is Lord come so that every knee will bow and every tongue confess at that time that Jesus is Lord. And so I want us to see, brothers and sisters then, that it's not contradictory to hold those two things in balance. To both pray for your enemies. To pray for the salvation of the ungodly. And at the very same time, Pray that His kingdom come, that God's name and His church be vindicated. You can do both of those things. And we ought to do both of those things. This leads us then into our third sub-point, which is what John notes the saints were given. It's our third sub-point. What John notes the saints were given. Look with me please at verse 11. 
Then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete who were to be killed as they themselves had been. What John sees that they were given then are what? Are white robes. And white robes symbolize a multitude of things. The first thing that, that just the color white symbolizes here is righteousness. Right? They, are, they are clothed in righteousness and heavenly glory. And we see this from Revelation chapter 7, verse 14. It supports that interpretation. In chapter 7, verse 14, we read this. And he said to me, These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. And so what we need to see is that these robes that the saints are wearing in heaven are a heavenly declaration of the righteousness that these saints have through faith in Christ. Right? That is one of the things these white robes symbolize. What else does white symbolize though? Remember we said in, in ancient courtroom settings, white also symbolized a not guilty verdict. Right? Black, stone was guilty, white, not guilty. And so what is this meant to convey likewise that they are wearing white robes? Right? That in heaven, it is here that they have been vindicated, that God declares them not guilty because of what Christ has done. Right? That He stood in the place of guilty sinners and He bore the wrath of God. He suffered their penalty so that in heaven they are vindicated. Right? They are put, the white robe is put on. Not guilty is who they are now in Christ. These are the garments that were promised to the church in Sardis. In chapter 3, verse 5, Jesus said this to the church in Sardis, The one who conquers will be clothed in white garments, and I will never blot out his name from the book of life. But understand this, right? Understand this. That the white heavenly uniform that we all will wear is not given to you because of anything that you have done, but rather that white uniform is to be worn by all of us in heaven because of what Christ has done for us. It is all of Christ. Right? The saints are righteous in glory because they have Christ's righteousness. The saints have been declared not guilty because Christ was condemned as guilty for them and hung upon the cross. The white robes also symbolize then our victory in Christ as well. If you remember, last week as we looked at uh, the first seal, as that first seal was removed, what do we see? A white horse with the rider on it who was going about conquering. And we said that this was what? Uh, those evil rulers that God had instituted as a punishment, as a judgment upon those nations that rejected Christ. But now, here what do we see? That that, that white, right? Uh, they, and they would ride in, we said, too, on, on white horses, if you recall in victory over their enemies. It was, a, it was a boastful showing. But here in heaven, we are going to be wearing white because it is we ultimately who are the true victors right, over sin and over death and over the world. And so that is what this white garments symbolize for us. And it's these robes that were given providing the saints assurance to those who are martyred that, that God then will fulfill His promises, that He will execute judgment, that He... He will stop persecution one day. But that time and day is not now. It is not now. In last, last week in our, our sermon, if you remember, I had spoken about our uh, 
our insatiable need to know the answer to the win question. And we see that here today, even in the saints in glory, do we not? How long, O oh Lord? They, they want to know when to be comforted. But they aren't told. Right? We know for certain there is a day, but a, a thousand years is just one day with the Lord. So only God knows what that day is. And He will not come one moment sooner or one moment later than He has appointed. And so what does He instruct the saints in glory then? He says to them, rest. Right? Rest. Don't worry about how long? Rest in peace until all the elect are saved. And so I hope that we see in that response that, that none of us right, are able to move history forward one bit. Right? None of us are able to change or go outside of anything that God has decreed or willed in this life. But yet, at the same time, God uses us to bring about in history His eternal decree. Right? We are used by God to serve His purposes. This is what we read in Matthew 24, verse 14. Jesus answers the question that the apostles ask Him in the Olivet Discourse about when the end of the world will come. And this is what He says, And this Gospel of the Kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. Do you see, the last day, brothers and sisters, will not come until the Gospel has gone forth to everyone that it is supposed to go forth to, and the last elect person is saved. But this is why then it is so important that the church be the church. right? That the, that the church help fund missionaries who, who spread the Gospel around the world. That perhaps we help support churches in dangerous regions. That we are faithful in our own church in the proclamation of the Gospel. That we are faithful in training up men and sending them out to proclaim the Gospel. This is why it's so important for each and every one of you here to be faithful witnesses to Christ in your homes, at your places of employment, right? at church, with friends, at, with family, at the grocery store, everywhere and at all times, being a faithful witness to Christ. Knowing that He, he uses means to bring sinners to salvation. But we likewise have to be diligent in doing it. Knowing that there is a day on the calendar. right? There is a day on that heavenly calendar in which Christ will return. And on that day, when He returns, the lost will have no more hope. For when He returns, He will bring with Him final judgment. And it's that final judgment that Christ reveals to the saints under the sixth seal as He removes the sixth seal in response to the fifth seal and their cries under it. And I see some of you sweating right now going, is He really going to get into the sixth seal 45 minutes into the sermon? And the answer is no. You'll have to wait for the, the sixth seal next week to see how God responds to the church. And what we will see is that He demonstrates, He shows to them, He reveals to them that He will come in judgment. But we'll have to wait and pick up next week with our second point in part two of this sermon. Please let us pray. Heavenly Father, we are so thankful for Your Word. We are thankful, Father, that we serve a God who is uh, holy and is true. We are thankful that we serve a God who does not change and that whose word can be relied upon, and whose promises we know will be kept, and whose likewise whose threats will be kept as well. 
We ask, Lord, that so long as we live on this earth, You would help us through the work of the Spirit uh, to live as martyrs here on earth, right? denying ourselves whatever it is that You have called us to so that we might be faithful and true witnesses to You here on earth. Likewise, Father, we ask that You would give us opportunity to witness to those who are close to us, our children or our family members or our dear friends, that You would use us, Father, that uh, You might use us as instruments or means by which uh, You make the Gospel known to them and that You bring the lost into the kingdom of Your glorious Son. And it's in His name that we pray today. Amen.